Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Willa Richards, author of the debut novel, The Comfort of Monsters. Willa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Sure. If someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, The Comfort of Monsters, how would you describe the novel? So for me, The Comfort of Monsters is a slow burn literary mystery. Um, some other readers have also described it as as a psychological thriller. Um, the core of the story is really um, Peg McBride. And she's a woman whose sister goes missing um, in the city of Milwaukee during the summer of 91. And um, this was the same summer that Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes were discovered by the Milwaukee PD. So unfortunately, Peg's sister's case sort of gets swallowed up by the media circus surrounding these investigations. Um, and it really quickly becomes a cold case. So the core of the novel is really Peg looking back on this summer, 30 years removed, um, still struggling to understand what happened and still considering evaluating sort of what, if any, role she played in her her own sister's disappearance. And I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing The Comfort of Monsters? Yeah, I um so my mother, it's kind of a long-winded story, but I'll try to try to make it brief. Um my my mother is a historic archaeologist. So um she's an osteologist. She works mostly in historic cemeteries. Um and she's worked in one historic cemetery in the city of Milwaukee quite extensively over the course of her career. Um and a family in Milwaukee actually contacted her asking if she would help them excavate a portion of the cemetery where they believed their long-time missing loved one um, might be buried. So she agreed to um, do this excavation for them. I volunteered very briefly on the project. Um, and it was really this particular case that sort of just got me thinking about cold cases in general um, and just really considering how and why some of these cases become so intractably unsolved um, and really all the myriad of ways that these cases can go cold. Sure. And and I'm curious with like the Jeffrey Dahmer and um, for the lack of a better word, I guess a little bit of a historical aspect, given that it's not mm-hmm. set in present day. What Was that case something that you had always been interested in? I wouldn't say so. I mean, I didn't know much about it. You know, I was an infant at the time, um, so I don't have <laughs> a memory of it uh, happening. And, you know, I, I had a very sort of pop culture understanding of the crimes, you know, it's one of those names that gets thrown around, I think, in a really jokey way often um, in popular culture. So that was really the extent to which I knew about them. Um, but, you know, when I when I really did sit down to think about these cold cases, that was just one thing that occurred to me right away was, you know, because of media and law enforcement resources, so often some of these quote unquote smaller cases get swallowed up by larger cases. And so when I was thinking about sort of the history of Milwaukee and the criminal investigations that occurred there, obviously one of the largest, most extensive investigations was into the the Dahmer crimes. So I sort of became interested in what other what other types of um violent crime happened during during that same period that sort of got, you know, overlooked um, because there there was such intense scrutiny on the the Dahmer crimes and sort of the city in general. Sure. What what was your writing journey that led you to writing and getting this debut novel published, The Comfort of Monsters? Um, <laughs> I mean i i was I wrote as a kid. Um, I started writing poems and stories when I was really little. 
Um, and I wrote for myself, you know, when I was growing up um, quite a bit. I didn't really study writing until I was an undergraduate at um, UW-Madison. And I took a bunch of creative writing classes there. I was actually a history major, but I, I did a creative writing thesis. So that was probably my first, um, I hesitate to call it a book, but it was a book length <laughs> work. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, and that was, you know, that was my first sort of formal experience in putting together um, a manuscript, you know, and then my advisor there encouraged me to apply to Iowa. Um, and I had, I had no idea what an MFA was or what, you know, what these programs were. Um, but I, I applied to uh, the MFA program there and I got in and then I went straight out of undergrad, which um, was, it was great. It was very intimidating. You know, I, a lot of my peers were, they had already published books or they had book contracts. Um, many of them had won a lot of prestigious prizes. So it was, it was very intimidating going there as like a 22 year old, um, that I still really had no idea what I was doing with my writing. Um, but I, you know, one of the really awesome things about Iowa, one of the many awesome things about, about Iowa is that they invite a lot of agents and editors, um, and, and so I, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just met with every single one of them. Um, I, and I don't even know what I gave some of these people. It's probably <laughs> embarrassing to, to think about now. Um, but yeah, I would just give them whatever I was working on at the time. And, um, you know, most of them I never heard of again, the vast majority I never heard from. Um, but one of the agents that I did meet with, she really connected with the, the short story that, um, became the comfort of monsters and, you know, we stayed in touch and, when I left Iowa, I taught, I worked at wine shops, I waitressed, I did my PhD. Um, and we sort of just would touch base every once in a while. And she'd say, how's it going? I'd be like, uh. um, she gave me a lot of notes. And then um, from there, we we went out with the book in, in early 2020, which was super nerve wracking. Um, yeah, I, I had just quit my job at the wine shop. And I was I was, you know, this was right before the pandemic. And I was I was so anxious that it that it wouldn't sell, but um, I was I felt very lucky that it that it did right before New York City shut down, actually. And I'm curious what what was that process like for you to go from this core of this short story to kind of mm -hmm. expanding that into a, a novel length work? Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, I I've always felt more of an affinity for the, for the longer form. Um, I really struggle in the short story form. Like I've been trained on them and I, you know, I can write them, but they always feel very confining to me. So I, I always tell people every short story I write is like, I feel like it has a novel seed, you know? Um, and so I was really excited when I, I felt like that was the last story I wrote for my workshop, my last workshop at Iowa. And I felt like, I was like, this is it. This is the one that I really feel like you know, it has legs, I can dig into it. Um, and, you know, from there, I just started doing a lot of um, storyboarding and research. I spent a lot of time on both those things in the very, very early stages of like the novel's conception. Um, and I tried not to rush those two things. Um, and I think that gave me a really solid ground so that when I got into like the middle of the book, which felt really wonky, really kind of, um, uh, you know, unnerving. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. I felt like I had a good solid base um, underneath me because of of the initial drafting stage. Sure. And and you just mentioned storyboarding. So so what did that look like for you? Um, 
in terms of uh, kind of planning or plotting or outlining the novel? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I really, I really love storyboarding. It, it's, I mean, this probably just reveals my, my type A tendencies, but it, it really gives me this like organizational thrill. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I like, I, I really like to have, um, like movable parts. So I'll either do like post-its or, um, uh, what am I thinking of? Note cards, like three by five note cards, that type of thing. Um, and you know, for this novel, I probably had like three or four different, um, ones that I went through versions of it. And, you know, it, it would, it, they always change dramatically. And I think especially from that very first one you do, um, a lot of stuff ends up kind of getting thrown out the window. But, um, I had a writing teacher at Iowa that talked about like looking at each chapter, potentially even each scene as like having a core emotional plot point and like a core, um, you know, just story plot point, like movement, momentum. So when I first sat down to do it, I really took that to heart and tried to think about, especially for the 91 sections, like, okay, what's the, what's the movement of the story and what's the movement of the um, emotional arc here? So that was kind of how I organized my very, very first storyboard. That's interesting. Uh, I'm curious, you, you mentioned uh, your Iowa Writers Workshop experience, and you mentioned uh, going there uh, when you were straight out of undergrad and and somewhat younger than um, uh, your your peers. I'm curious, what mm-hmm. was your overall experience like at the Iowa Writers Workshop? Um, my overall experience was awesome. I, I loved... I loved being there. Um, I, I loved the workshops. Um, I had a really, especially like my first year, I had a really great, um, sort of core group of friends and readers. Um, a couple of them that I still exchange work with today. Um, and I think that was just really formative for me. Um, especially since I was, I was younger um, than most people and I didn't really know what direction I wanted to go. I think to have a group of really supportive people that um, I can still give um, work to today was, was helpful. I mean, don't get me wrong there. You know, I know there's a lot of like, (laughs) I know there's, I know people talk about Iowa with this very sort of, um, how should I say it? I don't know. There's a competitive element. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really feel the environment to be this sort of like, cutthroat cold brutalist place um i again i think partly because i had a really great cohort group of friends um you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator sick of being upsold at gyms my guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I didn't really feel that. I mean, there were a couple of tough workshops. There always are. <laughs> um, and, you know, there, there's always going to be times where I'm like, I'm not meant to be here. You know, I don't know why I'm here. Those types of things. Right. But again, I think I was very um, protected by the, the group of friends I had who were really supportive um, and just really, really great writers themselves. You know, I mean, I, I had like a, a star studded cast of people when I was there, quite honestly. So um, it was it was really, really really fun in a lot of ways. That's great. So have you started working on another novel yet? I have started working on a longer piece. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still in that stage where I haven't like committed myself to, to saying it's a novel, mm -hmm. um, which I know is always a very shaky place to be in, but I've started working on something longer. Just, you know, it, it feels good to be um, doing generative work. I, you know, felt like I was editing the book for like, two or three years, you know, doing almost no generative stuff. So um, I think it's good just to kind of get back in the saddle when it comes to to generating. So it doesn't feel like there's too much time between projects. Um, but that maybe that's just me. I know other people like to wait longer. Sure. Well, well, given your your writing thus far, what writing advice would you offer for those who are listening, who are working on their own stories and novels? I think for me, it's really about, you know, trying to build that community. And I know there's a lot of conversation about MFA versus non-MFA. And I don't think that in any way you need an MFA to, to build that community. I think especially, you know, places like this podcast or, you know, other online writing spaces that, that can be very supportive. Um, but I think like just building that community, like having a group of readers, people that you really trust um, that you can exchange work with and not just writers either. I think that's like a lot of writers will like only exchange their work with other writers. And I think that's really helpful. And it can be, you know, um, it can help you with really specific craft stuff. But I think it's also important to make sure you're giving your work to, to like the general population of readers, you know, people that actually go to books just for like pleasure um, or, you know, for whatever specific reason they do. I think writers read in a really specific way, you know. Um, so I think that's really helpful. Just having a, a good diverse group of, of people that you can um, give your give your work to, including one like yes person. Um, that person that's always going to like hype you up and say like, you're doing great. Um, that for me, that's my sister. Like if I'm struggling and I need her to like inspire me or say like, you got this. I, I think it's important to have that one person that you can just give your stuff to and get that, you know, um, immediate feedback. That's, that's positive. That's good. That's good. I, I, I don't think I've heard that before. And I think that's a, a really, <laughs> uh, and I've done a lot of interviews and I, I think that's a really good point. I think it's a good point. I mean, I think it's good to have really uh, critical feedback, but to have someone in your corner, I think is great advice. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm curious, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I, I read a ton of books, um, earlier this spring, I read, um, Long Bright River by Liz Moore, which I just devoured. I thought it was so, so achingly beautiful. Um, I really, really admire that novel. And then I also read um, uh, Valentine, Elizabeth Wetmore's debut from, from 2020. Um, I share an agent with her, so I was like turned on to that book by my agent. And I, I thought it was just stunning, especially 
the beginning is so unbelievably cinematic and beautiful. Um, and then I read um, Caucasia by Dan D. Senna. That was a recommendation from my my husband, who's also a writer. Um, and then I just recently finished um, Elena Ferrante's most recent book, The The Lying Life of Adults. Um, I, I love her writing. I I read everything by her. I think she's just amazing. Um, and then right now I'm reading um, Sipam Jing's How Much of These Hills is Gold. Um, and I'm about, I'm, I think about three-fourths of the way through that. Um, I'm really loving it. The prose is just, it's it's so unique. I I, I really, really love the prose in that. Um, That's great. I really recommend it. Yeah. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your debut novel? So I'm, I have a website, www.willisyrichards.com, um, and links to some of the reviews. And um, my virtual tour is mostly over, but they're, most of them have been posted on YouTube. So you could watch some of the um, conversations I've been in with different bookstores and other writers. And then I'm also on Instagram at Willa Cather, um, which so it's just Willa, W-I-L-L-A, and then Cather with two R's. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Willa Richards, author of the novel, The Comfort of Monsters. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Willa, thanks for doing this interview. All right. Thanks so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Comfort of Monsters by Willa Richards, performed by Stacey Glimboski, available from Harper Audio, wherever Audiobooks are sold. Let me try to be clear about what this is. I have a layperson's understanding of the law. Until several months ago, when I was fired, I was a library and circulation services assistant at Marquette University's Law Library. I'd spent most of my five years there studying textbooks with anesthetizing titles like Evidentiary Foundations. I often stole these books stashing them away with the files from my sister's case so I could keep studying at home. But even so, all I can say with confidence is that the most compelling story is the truest story. Unfortunately, it's rarely the other way around. What I've learned from Graham C. Lilly's book, for example, is that when lawyers argue a case, they aren't interested in the truth. Instead, they are concerned with curating a body of evidence that is favorable to their client. The fact finder, either a jury or a judge, is then tasked with evaluating that evidence and deciding what has occurred. During closing arguments, lawyers have one last chance to shape the meaning and weight of the presented evidence and to construct a believable story, a series of plausible events that is supported by the evidence. Legally speaking, evidence is any matter, verbal or physical, that can be used to support the existence of a factual proposition. In this particular case, I bear the burden of producing evidence that will persuade law enforcement of the following factual proposition. A man I knew as Frank Cavelli murdered my sister, Candace McBride. So far, I have failed. This failure of persuasion, according to police, lies in the fact that I am missing the only piece of evidence that has ever mattered. My sister's body. No body, no crime. They've repeated this mantra so often over the years that I've begun to hear it at all times, like it's etched onto one of the very fine bones inside my ear. 
What the police mean to say is that my account of Dee's disappearance is inconsequential. It's not just that they don't believe me, it's that even if they did, without her body, my story does not legally matter. I'm sure this is true. I'm also sure that they aren't inclined to hear my story because of the unofficial form it takes. So I've tried over the years to engage in a process of translation, to transform these memories into evidence, and to apply the federal rules of evidence to these memories. This is an impossible endeavor. The language of the law was designed to exclude, to be cold and unfeeling, and above all else, to confuse. I've done my best. For decades now, I've kept all of these files crammed inside my one-bedroom apartment on Milwaukee's east side, and I've been rehearsing my story. And recent events have convinced me I cannot wait any longer to argue this case. Otherwise, I'm afraid Dee and I, and the rest of my family, will be forgotten. Because our story will dissolve, first, into the annals of the local newspaper archives, and then finally, into meaninglessness. This has already happened once. Lately, I've also become afraid that someone else will tell this story, and their version will prove to be more compelling than mine. Among the legacies of misogyny that live on today is a general distrust of women, a belief that we are conniving and cunning by nature. Still, a fear exists that women are capable of controlling, using, and abusing men with their feminine wiles. Lest we believe that this hysteria peaked in Salem, Massachusetts in 1693, the 45th President of the United States has publicly propagated these biases, saying, among other things, that he has seen women manipulate men with just a twitch of their eye, or perhaps another body part. The social constructions surrounding gendered categories have had grave and lasting consequences. Consider, for example, early civil laws on the European continent, inherited from Roman codes, which were based on the inferiority and subjection of women. In these early courts, women were not allowed to be witnesses, and later, even after they were deemed legally competent to testify, their testimonies were almost ubiquitously cast as worthless. Today, though the United States federal rules of evidence indicate that, quote, every person is competent to be a witness, end quote, this language only calls attention to the court's long and ongoing history of exclusion. This storied history is very much not behind us. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. 
Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.